0: Evil weights below the surface. That is, of course, the iconic back-of-the-box copy for Metroid Prime, the next game in our video gameography series on Metroid. That's right, this is video gameography a podcast that takes a look at the most iconic franchises in gaming history, one game at a time. I'm Ben Reeves. And I'm Marcus Stewart. And today we're joined by Game Informer editor, Blake Hester. How's it going, Blake?
1: Hello. Thank you for having me. The man you love to hate. He's
0: here in the flesh. In your ears. Your fleshy ears? I I hope you're not in my flesh. <laughs> <laughs> and you never will be. If I have anything to say about it. Blake, you were a interesting choice for this episode. Mm-hmm. When we decided to do Metroid. Metroid Prime, we could have picked anybody in the world probably, right? You could have, yes. And I picked you because we're just going to lay all our cards out on the table right now. You have not played Metroid Prime. No. But you do have some interesting insight into the game, correct? I'd like to
1: think so. Yeah. I've never touched the game once in my life. Never owned a GameCube, even. I'll go a step further. I haven't played Corruption or Echoes. But I did, uh, long before my tenure at Game Informer, my storied career here, I did a uh, story as a freelancer on... Basically, the road to Metroid Prime for Retro Studios, um, their early history for Polygon, a website people might know. And you decided to have me on to talk about that story. So I had to go read it. It was like a five-year-old story. I had to go reread it and
0: remind myself what I actually wrote. And this was in celebration of the announcement of Metroid Prime 4? Or what was this for?
1: No, I, I read that. I don't know who put that in that article because it wasn't at all. Definitely not. If I'm remembering correctly, if I'm getting into the lore of my own article, um, before it I had written a story on BMX Triple X and um, for Vice and I got really interested in this like slew of gross games. So after doing BMX Triple X, the obvious choice after that was The Guy Game by Top Heavy Studios. Which was was founded. Yeah, was founded by Jeff Spangenberg, who was the founder of Retro Studios, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. Um, My top heavy story never got approved, but I was like researching Jeff Spangenberg and found out Retro had this like wildly rocky beginning. Um, Claims of embezzlement, of running porn websites out of
0: the studio, all this really bizarre stuff. Stuff that you would expect from a second-party Nintendo company, right?
1: Yeah, um, stuff that, if I remember correctly, all came from an IGN feature from like 2004 or something, maybe even earlier. That was so baffling, I was like, this can't be true. We'll get into it. Probably wasn't true, but that's how um,
0: I ended up on this podcast, suffice it to say, as I looked into that story. So you did all of that research on the game. The mm-hmm. series and the studio, but you had no desire to play no. Metroid Prime or were you ever like, oh, I should play this game and just didn't well, get around to it? it. This, is, this is something
1: I've done a lot in my career where I write about a studio or the development of a game and I haven't actually played the game because few of my stories, um, especially as a freelancer, it's a little different now where my work has kind of refocused to be more review based. But when I was reporting, I was never really writing about a game. You know, I was writing about the circumstances and the people and the business decisions that led to the game. So it's like, yeah, playing Metroid Prime might have helped me in some ways. But like, I can't imagine a universe where I'm like, I really need to know about this niche mechanic in this game or this level. What I'm actually trying to figure out, like, hey, why did Nintendo fund this studio and believe all these like this guy with you know a couple hits under his belt would be able to deliver five triple a projects for the launch of a console not really sure i need to know what color samus aran's suit is you know
0: it's orange i know that well i'll tell you this blake i think Mm -hmm. playing metroid prime would help you be a happier person because it is a great game to play i think it's very enjoyable it's one of my favorites I i i have a question about this I was thinking about
1: where would I even play it? Oh, it's on the collection for the Wii.
2: I don't have a Wii. I don't have a Wii um, or a Wii, U. The Wii it's. I mean, the Wii is backwards compatible with GameCube games anyway, so you could always mm-hmm. get the original copy. And we say this every episode, but hopefully it's coming to the Switch here anytime. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, before Metroid Any?
0: Prime 4, I think they'll release it. That's my guess anyway. But yeah, I, I, it, Metroid Prime, the subject of today's episode. One of my personal favorite games, maybe of all time, one of my favorites in the series. I think, you know, Super Metroid is still I think I lean towards preferring the 2D overall. But if you're going to do a Metroid in 3D like this was great, a great version of the Metroid formula. I love it. Marcus, what about you? Do you like Metroid Prime?
2: Yeah, I love this game. I didn't have a GameCube either back in the day. Um, The first time I played this game and I I actually looked this up because I was like, this is probably recent enough where I started writing every like list every year of every game I ever finished. Um, And I still have them. So I know every game I finished beginning in 2010. And so apparently and this goes back to actually to uh, last week's episode on Metroid Fusion. It turns out I played Fusion Prime and Prime 2 all in 2011, um, beginning with Fusion. And I played it on the Wii. I, I bought GameCube the copies of Prime 1 and 2 because uh, that was like a blind spot. And like you said, Ben, everyone was raving about Metroid Prime. I was like, oh, I got to I gotta play these. And it, it's crazy because at the time, I loved it. And think about that in 2011. This game came out in 2002. It was already nine years old by the time I got to it. And I remember being blown away by like, this still looks really good (laughs) just like graphically and it plays well especially on the weird gamecube controller like the idea of playing a first-person shooter and that thing and i remember just like devouring prime and even like you know maybe jumping ahead a bit but looking up footage for today's episode and re-watching i was like this still looks good (laughs) like a decade later after i initially played i was like i this still looks like this could come out today in some respects and i guess that's why People want it re-released, right? (laughs) It's interesting that you're saying that, Marcus, because I remember reading EGM at the
0: time. Sacrilegious now, I I know. But uh, I remember reading EGM at the time and their review for Metroid Prime. They talked about this game feels like a game that fell out of a time warp. It feels like a game from 10 years in the future that just dropped into today. And I remember thinking about that while I was playing that game and feeling you know, it kind of does. It felt like ahead of its time in some respects, which we can get into here in a bit. But I, because of that, it still holds up because of the choices they made. It still really holds up. I can't say today because I haven't played it in probably like 10 years, like you're saying, but it held up for a long time.
2: Uh, I'll say that at least. I still have my GameCube copies of it. I still have my Wii. So it's like I could technically fire them up anytime. And I, I definitely have been tempted to. Uh, yeah, just lord it over Blake. Blake, you should uh, Blake, you should play Metroid Prime. You know, they're so good. And let me t- you know, we're gonna tell you all about it in the next hour. or So <laughs> I've actually never I've actually never played a Metroid game. Metroid Dread will
1: be my first Metroid game. So okay. that's a good one to start with. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm <laughs> interested to see if you get excited about diving back into the series and playing some of the old other old this is, ones.
2: This is Metroid specifically, right? Like you've played Metroidvania games.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just never played a Metroid
1: game. Again, I ah. had a, I had a Game Boy Color and then not a Nintendo thing till the Switch, so
2: okay. any tenfold... Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm sure you're familiar with the,
1: the concept of a Metroidvania, I'm sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, Ori was one of my favorite games
0: the last year. So yeah. I like the genre, definitely. Well, let's dive into it. Cast your mind back to 2002 when games like Metroid Fusion came out. I know we just did this last episode; it was the same exact year. But just to recap, you know, King the first Kingdom Hearts, first Ratchet and Clank, uh, first Splinter Cell, Mario Sunshine. I think we said last episode that Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man film, Sam Raimi Spider-Man came out, which was great. Brazil wins the 2002 World Cup in Korea. We all know where we were exactly president jimmy carter is awarded the nobel peace prize so that's some of the events of 2002
2: yeah i started high school once again that's That's right still the biggest event
0: of the year When, when did you start high school blake 2008
2: i think
1: yeah i was like eight in 2002 so yeah i started high school in 2008 Graduated in 2012 trinity shamrocks
0: baby now i feel very old It's funny because, Marcus, I always look at you as like the super young in, but I'm forgetting that there's like younger people on (laughs) staff now than you.
2: Yeah, it's it's the hierarchy we got here.
0: (laughs) Metroid Prime came out on November 7th, 2002, which we did mention again last episode. There was some debate over whether or not. Metroid fusion came out on the same day, or maybe it's possible that Metroid fusion came out the day after I saw conflicting reports on that. I remember going and buying them both on the same day and I thought it was release day. Regardless, it's possible we did these episodes out of order because it's technically possible that this came out before fusion. However, Fusion felt like a good sort of recap end cap. I should say of the first phase of Metroid And this starts a new era for the Metroid franchise because it's going into 3D. So there's that. It is the first game developed outside of Nintendo proper, developed by Retro Studios. And I'd love to go into the history. So, Blake, I'll kick this off, but feel free to jump in, fill in any holes that I might have glossed over. To start with the history of Retro Studios, I think you got to go back actually to Iguana. (laughs) Yes, game company Iguana, which was founded by Jeff Spangenberg in 1991, they are probably best known for games like Turok, and they did a bunch of sports franchises. They did the breakaway games. They did the NFL quarterback club.
1: They also did um, the console versions of NBA Jam, which is very interesting. Oh, Oh. that
0: is interesting. Yeah. Were you guys, you guys weren't players back (laughs) then? Well, you were <laughs> players, I'm sure, in your own way. But you didn't play a ton of games, I'm guessing, of those games. You probably weren't playing Turok, right? We're talking about N64 Turok, right? Yeah, N64 Turok, which the first one was sort of an okay shooter. But then Turok 2 is when that series, well, it's in some ways maybe the only really great Turok game. Yeah. It was a great game <laughs> that had save points that were scattered to the wind because you you would play that game for hours and not hit a save point like i remember you would have to play that game and just put the game on pause and leave your system on turn the tv off and go to school because you're like well i'm not <laughs> getting a save point oh returnal yeah just like returnal
2: yeah i i didn't have an n64 growing up but i do remember playing the tarot games at uh friends like for that game was pretty popular among my friend groups so i think they all had it so, you know, it's one of those things where you go over, you play like the first couple hours of it and go like, wow, this is cool. Like dinosaurs, man, it's foggy. Uh, and yeah, but yeah, you know, it was a it was a super cool game in its time. I've always wanted to I've been curious about buying those kind of expensive remasters to see how they hold up. Um, but yeah, I remember sure. having some fond memories of Turok. So
0: Jeff Spangenberg's company, Iguana, is bought by Acclaim. And then around the end of the 90s, I want to say it was 98, Blake, mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, he gets yep. fired from a claim. He kind of rose the ranks in a claim and became a, a big mucky muck. But then he was fired, and there was some controversy there over why he was fired, from my understanding. Yeah, it,
1: it was before his contract let up. um, And so they, he sued, and then they settled out of court. I'm not exactly sure why he was fired, actually. No, knowing a little bit of his extracurricular activities, um, maybe it could have been for anything that that man has seemingly been up to. But um, yeah, I don't think I ever tracked
0: down the reasoning a claim gave. Well, and you alluded to some of that earlier. Do you want to get into that? Like his extracurricular stuff? You think Nintendo was just, just not aware of what was going on there? Because they he did not really fit yeah. their squeaky clean image.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and, and I want to say up front, um, I've never spoken to Jeff. Bengenberg, he is my white whale interview. I have tried for years to talk to this man, and he is uh, seemingly uh, just not interested at all. I think he blocked me on LinkedIn. Um, mm. But the uh, it, it's hard to know what's kind of true, and there are things I don't want to say. But the one thing I can talk about is a website he ran called Sinful Summer, which was kind of alluded to in the IGN report I brought up. I believe it was the pornographic website. It wasn't really that. It, I think one way you could look at it was it was Jeff Spangenberg's uh, maybe sex blog. Um, as I understand it, it was a website he ran on Retro's IP address, which is baffling. Um, just full of pictures of parties he had with um, women who worked at local strip clubs in Austin, Texas. I don't know if any of this is why. He was uh, fired from Acclaim because, as far as I understand, Sinful Summer would have been after um, and, you know, was again being run out of Retro's IP address. So, like, that uh, Iguana and Acclaim completely predate it. But I think someone once described Jeff Spangenberg as a a bit of a rock star. So, you know, he kind of had that behavior, he kind of had dabbled in that kind of a. internet material pre imp or uh, during and post retro so i, I don't want to speculate about a man i don't know but when i hear someone is fired and that's all i know about their behavior who knows
2: speaking of like assumptions i don't want to assume anything but having never seen jeff spangen spangenberg uh mm-hmm. for some reason my mind Keeps thinking that he's the dude on the cover of the guy game box art <laughs> and it's canonically. Mm-hmm. That is my head canon. I, I'm pretty sure that's not the case, but I'm just like, mm-hmm. I don't know why he fits that in my mind. <laughs> We've
0: definitely painted a picture of that for sure. And yeah, like again, none of us know Jeff and maybe he's a great guy. I don't want to like disparage him or defame him per se. But it is an interesting story. And here's why it's important, because when Jeff is fired from a claim in 1999, he decides to form his a new company. He's like, I've done this before. I did Iguana. I'm just going to do it again. Forms Retro Studios. He's like, oh, I got a bunch of contacts at Nintendo. You know, they know me. I publish games for them. Maybe they'll be interested in helping fund Retro a little bit and we can make more games for them. Nintendo obviously had the GameCube coming out. And they were like, we need more games for our GameCube, which is going to hit stores in 2001. Maybe retro would be good for that. You know, this is the guy who, you know, not single handedly, obviously, but he helped get Turok out the door. Turok was a big success. So I think there's like from Nintendo's perspective, they're like, oh, well, maybe he can deliver more sort of mature games and court a different audience that we don't normally get on our systems. So I think that's what Nintendo was thinking with with helping to fund retro.
2: Yeah, especially because, like, isn't the story that the reason we didn't get a Metroid game on N64 was that it, it was as simple as uh, Nintendo was like, we well, didn't have really any ideas for what you do with this series on on N64. And that uh, I think Sakamoto said something about, like, the controller probably not being a good fit, which is some interesting foresight on his part, because I even, before Prime, I would have a hard time imagining how to adapt Metroid into like a like a first person or even a game that you would yeah like the way you would need a an analog stick to do what would be required of a first person game i don't know i've always thought that was interesting where you just like knew like nah, that controller won't work for metroid it's like okay
0: i i think some of that's just them looking back and being like making excuses to some degree i think just this is my own take but i just don't think nintendo was i don't think there was anybody high up in nintendo who really loved metroid and wanted to fight for it you know, the story goes that Miyamoto doesn't really care for Metroid.
1: Ben, I buy, I buy what you're saying about Nintendo funding it, but I think it's important to say that retro under no circumstance was founded to develop a Metroid game.
0: Oh no, that's a great point because so the, the, they had four projects in development early on. One of them was called Meta Force. I believe it was an action adventure game. Mm-hmm. I think a first person shooter actually which that's important that's the important one. They mm-hmm. had a car combat game, they had an NFL game and they had an RPG called Raven's Blade. Pretty quickly like all right, let's do let's do our iguana thing, like you know, let's do all the this, you know yeah, games this, of the era what people are into. This is something I've thought about a lot in terms
1: of retro's founding. I mean, it's not uncommon for a company to fund a new studio But I I would kill to have been a fly on the wall. Nintendo, ostensibly, an intelligent company full of intelligent people, who just bought into this guy pitching four games at a console launch that all shared uh, four games of wildly different genres that all share one engine that did not exist yet. They were going to make their own proprietary engine. And then fund an entire studio with a mocap studio. You know, this is like early days of mocap in video games. More than 100 employees, which is a massive AAA studio for back then. It, It is baffling to me that this man sold this ambitious dream to a company like Nintendo. And Nintendo was like, yeah, I mean, he
2: made Turok, so... This is definitely I, a smart idea. <laughs> like, I guess what? it goes back to them not being as precious about Metroid as they are their other franchises. Like they're willing to kind so
1: of. But again, no. Hmm?
2: But Metroid wasn't a conversation.
1: It was yeah. Metroid wasn't ideas, a factor really on. You know, like it is. It is a bafflingly ambitious company that I think I'm always surprised that Nintendo is like, yeah, let's do that instead of being like that sounds cool. We'll fund a one
0: game studio. And 40 people, you know, it's like, it's crazy to me. I, th- I think it just speaks to the fact that, you know, Spangenberg had that. his yeah. He was an executive at claim. You know, he started his own company that put out a, a bunch of games on the N64. Like, I think yeah. they just sort of trusted him. And like, maybe he was like, you know, it's possible he was talking himself up a little more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trying I, to be like, oh, we'll, we'll do four games. Yeah. And they're like, four games, really? And but I yeah. don't know, for some reason, they trusted him.
1: I imagine um, someone said this to me about people at retro, early people. I don't know if they meant Spangenberg specifically, but to use their quote, they said uh, some executives just got the gift of the gab. And I have to imagine uh, Spangenberg
0: could talk his way into some good stuff. You know, that's that's what it sounds like for sure. So th- so anyway, the studio is working on these games for a couple years. And then in 2000, Ninten- Nintendo, my understanding is they kind of let them off the leash and like go do the yeah. thing, you know, you got to work on games, you do it. And then around 2000 producer Shigeru Miyamoto, he visited the studio uh, along with a bunch of other Nintendo folks. And they were somewhat disappointed by what they saw. Let's say uh, all four games. They were like, yeah. none of these look good. And my understanding is they took a look at the action adventure game, the the shooter, which was called Metaforce. And m- that's when Miyamoto was like, okay, there's something interesting about this tech at least. Mm. And he suggested that, why don't you guys make Metroid with this? Does that (laughs) seem about right, Blake? Yeah, every
1: game was underperforming. I mean, nothing was really getting done. There were like engine and tech issues. And Spangenberg had done this thing you hear about some game studios doing occasionally where they're like, we'll hire a bunch of people that have never worked on games before. They worked on board games and movies. And then a game just never gets made because those people don't have the experience to actually do it. It just sounds good on paper. Um. So every game was just like underperforming, and then Miyamoto showed up, and it was described to me as a bloodbath. Um, which I've heard Miyamoto can be pretty vicious when he doesn't like something. I think I've also heard the same about Shuhei Yoshida. Um, which makes sense; they're executives, whatever.
0: I know. I don't know. Every time I've met him, he must like me because he's pretty. Happy. Well, you're
1: also not making a game for him. <laughs> no, a hundred percent.
0: He hasn't seen the things I made for him.
1: Yeah. It, it is always funny to think like um I don't know if it's Nintendo of Japan or just Miyamoto doesn't like Metroid but it is always funny because in America Metroid is like this this like very sacred series and for Miyamoto he's like well this company's f- up a lot we might as well give them one of our most storied
0: franchises. Well, I think that speaks to what you were talking about earlier Marcus of like or, or I don't know who was saying it but like nobody cared about Metroid over there and Minimo is yeah. just like ah, what's in the back here that we're not using Metroid
2: yeah. here you go it's like they're Harry Potter If they were like Harry's adopted parents like Metroid is in the <laughs> cupboard under the stairs while like Link and Mario get to eat at the dinner table to give them some credit though do you
0: think He was like, okay, this is a U.S.-based studio, and people in the U.S. seem to like Metroid more, so maybe a U.S. studio would be able to capitalize on that in some way.
1: making like a first-person shooter. You know, they were in Austin, Texas, which had a deep history of FPS games and first-person games just in general. And they had hired, like, there were Looking Glass and id people at Retro, so he might have just put two and two together and been like, well, let's give them an opportunity to make something new with Metroid.
0: Yeah, what, what else was being developed around that time? Because, like, Doom had already come out. Ion Storm was around at that time, right? It might have been the tail end.
2: Maybe, yeah. Ha- probably Halo would have been in the works.
1: Quake. Probably early some on, yeah. Some version of Quake, I'm sure, was big. Back then, Unreal Tournament, stuff like that. Die
0: Katana, of course. <laughs> oh, classic. The game everyone knows and loves. I can't tell you what John Romero did to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I, did we run that ad in a Game Informer? I bet we did. I, we certainly did. I'm sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> How could you not? But I, I think it's also the uh, the thing of like I like going back to what you're saying about and what we've covered in other episodes about Metroid just being more popular here than in Japan. I could see the logic of you know like well Americans already like this more than we do. We don't understand the appeal, so maybe yeah. well give it to the the target audience, so to speak. And it's like since you guys already like this. You know what you like about it? You go make it.
1: <laughs> I think it's it's worth noting though that decision led to really horrific layoffs at Retro. By no means was the studio doing well at that point. Um a lot of crunching on projects that were just going nowhere, but taking a four game studio especially in, you know, 2002-2003 where team sizes were drastically different than they are today, because games were just different. Uh, taking a four-game studio and making it a one-game studio means, as, as far as I understand it, there were two massive round of, rounds of layoffs where up to half of the entire company was let go, which is horrific
0: and horrible. Yeah. To think about um, the the Metaphorce project turned into Metroid, obviously, mm-hmm. and then they had the other three. So the car combat game and the football game. This is based on my research. They those projects were axed pretty quickly, I think, and they yeah. they took some people in to the Metroid team, but you know, there's a lot of redundancies, so they had to lay out yeah. a lot of people off. And then I think a year later, they they killed the RPG as well. So same thing. Too mm-hmm. bad. Yeah.
2: Raven Blade is a cool name. They should it is bring a cool name. Back. Somebody
0: should use that. Yeah, we should use it. <laughs> Oh, TM, we got it. Or copyright. I don't know what we need to do. It's ours now. (laughs) Both. (laughs) Yep, We got them both. Uh, Going back to the first person thing, that the fact that the game was first person wasn't like a total foregone conclusion. In 2007, there was a Montreal Game Summit presentation. Director Mark Pacini talked about the fact that it was, the game was first person. He actually talked about, initially he kind of wanted it to be third person. He said. I almost didn't want to be on the project if it wasn't, meaning if it wasn't third person at the time, Miyamoto felt that shooting in third person was not very intuitive.
1: Mm.
0: We've come a long way since then. This is still Mark talking, but that was one of the reasons they were moving towards the first person angle. And what's Mm. one of the main themes of Metroid question exploration The easiest way to observe your surroundings, even in a third person game is usually to switch to a first person camera and then move around as you look around. I think that's interesting. One of the reasons they went to first person camera was actually because of the exploration angle.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of the Metroid series, and it's, it's pretty cool to like that. They focus on that as the, uh, you know, kind of the heart and soul of the game and the thing we got to hone in on to the point where we got to, pretty much completely rework the perspective and
0: giving Miyamoto credit again, like even if he doesn't like this series, which reportedly he doesn't like, it seems like he at least understood what the game was about. He understood that it was an exploration game and that's what you should focus yeah. on. Another thing that I think speaks to uh, how Miyamoto was surprisingly like influential. I, that's not a surprise. He was influential in, in a good way is they almost cut the morph ball from the game. Which is wild to me, if you think about it, because yeah. that's such a like crucial element of Metroid. But when you move to 3D, you're like, oh, anything goes. Is the morph ball important enough to keep? And this is another quote from that presentation. Pacini says, we use Super Metroid as our kind of Bible, but as we'd been sold on the concept of first person, we couldn't see how the ball fit into the title. In fact, it was actually on the chopping block for a long time. We thought about concentrating on the exploration through platforming, which might be good enough. But Miyamoto's first directive was if we don't make the transition between the ball and first person seamless, then we can't do this game. So saying, if you don't put the ball in the game,
2: you're not making a game. See, he cares. If yeah. he didn't care, he'd probably be like, whatever, cut it. I don't care. I'm never <laughs> going to play this or look at it. <laughs>
1: I'm sure he had some, as well, a financial stake in the game doing well, whether he liked it or not. He was like, hey, come on, make this thing good. I got money
0: to make. Well, at this point, they poured two years worth of money into the team, right? And yeah. they haven't produced anything. It's a lot of setup costs, obviously. Yeah. But it's two years before they even find out like what game they're making.
2: Hmm. But it's even... Like, even with the money on the line, like, it seems like it would even be more feasible. Like, hey, this is, if this is really a hassle or it's costing too much money, just cut it. You know, make it work. But for him, like, that speaks to, like, a deeper appreciation for, like, no, this is what this series is. This is a pillar of the series. You need to make it work. Like, I don't think it would sell, like, it would somehow sell, like, a million less copies just cause, like, oh, I can't turn into a ball. Like, that's the thing that makes Metroid so good. But it is yeah. one of the things that has always made it Unique. I don't think I would call it like a. I mean, it is a signature feature, but it's weird to think of it as like this make or break sales thing. <laughs> like, what? No Metro. No Morph Ball. No buy. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I, I think that's just him more philosophically. Like, no, this is the one of the hearts of Metro. And you got to do it, or
0: else. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because there are, were other abilities such as like the Screw Attack or the Speed Booster, which felt also pretty important to the series mm. back then. At least important to the. 2d version of metroid and those abilities that my understanding is they explored them a little bit but they couldn't make it work and so they eventually cut the screw attack and the speed booster i could see that i would i would put morph ball over those two in terms of importance oh i would too yeah Mm -hmm. it's just interesting to see like okay ball very important (laughs) this has (laughs) to stay speed boost yeah we like it but
2: whatever it doesn't work that probably be disorienting at first person like going super fast (laughs) that could be a problem
1: there's that famous miyamoto quote you kind of see shared around on twitter every now and then that's something like give me them balls we should probably cut that (laughs) what is that (laughs) just a joke just a little joke for (laughs) y'all that's great
0: glad you're here actually blake during your research did you run into miyamoto talking about Samus should have a bug's head (laughs) <laughs> no, that's really interesting, though. I have not heard this. So there's a quote from Michael Wakan, Mike Wakan. He was a senior game designer at Retro, a senior designer on Metroid Prime specifically. And he says, I can remember when we were developing Metroid Prime early on, we were discussing with Mr. Miyamoto how we could explore Samus's control scheme or do something unique. And Miyamoto said, well, what if Samus could take her head off And maybe put on a head that had bug eyes or a head that saw in the dark or whatever. (laughs) Just switch heads. And we came out of the meeting and we went back to our office and we were like, bug eyes? And we drew pictures on the walls of Samus's (laughs) helmet and then Samus with a bug head. And we just stared at it, trying to understand. Surely he can't mean that he wants Samus to switch heads and put on a bug head. And then we realized that he was saying, like, what if Samus had a means of perceiving the world in a different way? Whereas in the Western developer, you might say, what if you had X-ray vision or what if you had thermal vision? He was saying, how do you perceive the world as a whole? Mm -hmm. Nintendo has pretty good interpreters, so I don't I don't think it was an interpretation (laughs) issue.
2: That almost sounds like a weird test. Like I'm gonna intentionally say like offer a terrible idea, and if they think it's a good idea, then they they lose Metroid. <laughs> it's like oh you think you yo, you think Samus should have a bug head? Like no, nah, you're off the project. Um, do you think yeah. Do you think that's where Double Fine got the idea for Headlander? Oh, Miyamoto exactly. came to their office and yeah, and, he like, in hey,
1: I, and had the I, same I, idea. I to tell Retro Studios to do this. Then they went with some philosophical vision of it, but no, head off, new head
0: on. Imagine yeah, that. Tim Schaefer just woke up in the middle of the night and Miyamoto was there scrawling on his wall,
2: bug head. Now Tim Shafer's <laughs> listening to this like, wait, he meant different visions? Like, oh, <laughs> that would have <laughs> been so much easier. <laughs>
1: it's very funny to imagine
2: Double Fine <laughs> paying for Miyamoto's consultation on Headlander. <laughs> You know, it's funny that you mentioned the bughead though, because Samus's helmet—I I, I kind of imagine it—it's—it's it's praying mantis shape. If I had to pick a bug, You know what I mean, like kind of the general yeah, shape of it. I can see that. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I'm sure it's designed to be alien. Yeah. Like, and a lot of the enemies she fights are are aliens, but they're also like
2: buggy-like aliens. Yeah. So it kind of fits that theme. Yeah. Maybe that's what. Maybe he thought the same thing. Maybe that's why he's bug as a reference point. Ah, yeah, it's, I, it's such a funny quote. Like, what if she had a bug head? <laughs> that's where you just smile and nod. Like, I don't want to disagree with this genius, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly the position they were in. They're like, well, we can't tell him no. But anyway, this is where the she has different visors in the game. And so that's where a lot of the visors came from. Near the end of the project, they were talking about. There's something missing. They still all felt like there was something missing, and they added a, a new visor. That visor where you can scan stuff. Yeah, that was added pretty late in the project.
2: Which is funny because that's like a core mechanic of Prime—is that that scan visor? And it's even though I played it, you know, I played it in 2011, so it's post Arkham Asylum. But would the Prime games be like the earliest, one of the earliest examples of like a a detective vision style mechanic? Ooh, interesting i I'm trying to i can't really think of anything else before that that did it like at least in terms of like a mod because that's pretty much what it is at the end of the day, yeah, I can't think of anything else like I remember I played prime and sometimes you yeah sometimes you just leave that visor on right so you don't miss it
0: things was. so in super Metroid there was the x-ray vision thing, although that functioned very differently it you know it was a cone that shot out of her actual eyes and it was not as useful, yeah. I mean it was it was excuse me, it was very useful in the game for finding secrets, but it was kind of annoying because you had to scan everything. Yeah. It was less functional, let's say. Yeah. Whereas the, you know, first person game. So now you just see everything in X-ray.
2: Yeah, I almost want to say like prime. Yeah, in terms of like modern detective vision. And, you know, calling it detective vision. It's like I don't know what the name would be, but Batman has like the most famous example of it. Like that's the earliest example of like that. Again, for a modern version that I can think of, which Maybe it's uh, another prop for Prime that doesn't get touted as much.
0: Yeah. Well, they added that super late and there's a rush to get all that in. And the Japanese Nintendo side were like, no, nah, people are going to love it. And I think the retro team was like, oh, I-
2: this seems dumb. Do you guys like scanning games? Yeah, it's it. it it's it, on one hand, there's like a weird part of my like lizard brain. It's like there's a satisfaction in cataloging things right like I, I everything here is unknown and now it's known like i cleaned it out so to speak it's almost it's like an extension of like finding treasures or i guess right in the traditional sense and sure. and to me it can be uh it just adds to immersion if it's a a like like a metroid of like the idea of like oh you're exploring an unknown planet you got this helmet you're, like i would do that too if i was in that situation like i want to know everything about everything here let's catalog this plant life is this going to kill me can i eat this uh, for me, it just gets me, uh, or yeah, it just makes me feel more into the uh, in the world. More scanners, basically. I love that movie,
0: Scanner Darkly. No, there's just a movie called Scanners, probably before your time. David Cronenberg, dude's head explodes. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, his head explodes, and then he puts Very on cool. a bug head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, that's where Mimo got it. One other <laughs> thing that was cut from the game was Craid. Apparently, they wanted to get Krayt in the game. They just got him for time. Blake, did you do any research on like what the office was like? Just mm-hmm. what the culture inside Retro was like? Sure.
1: Uh, it was bad. is <laughs> is a nightmare. Um, by the time Metroid really kicked off, Jeff Spangenberg got fired uh, pretty unceremoniously from retro and nintendo bought a mature uh, bought a majority share within the company i think they bought a lot of his stock yeah, basically exactly. didn't they just buy all his
0: shares like yeah we'll take those yeah
1: yeah and then they uh they replaced jeff spangenberg with steve barcia who had been working there from the beginning and steve uh again not someone who would talk to me for my story so going off what was told to me uh steve who you could say probably had a great vision for this game. I mean, granted, he wasn't, you know, the director or anything, but he helped oversee it to fruition. Um, put that, like a lot of people, at the top of AAA companies at the cost of people's personal lives and personal well beings. And so, uh, Metroid Prime was plagued by a really bad crunch um, just to get that thing out of the door. Um, Twenty years on, people will still talk about it very, very negatively. Um, I, I can't imagine you would talk about a crunch positively, but you know what I mean. Like people will kind of treat it as a focal point. I think one person—I don't know if he's—he was embellishing or not—said uh, he worked forty-eight hours straight, which is just a crime
0: against man in one day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> not to make light so, of it. That's that's yeah. mean. But I heard, I heard numbers. Uh, Going up to eighty or even hundred hours during like the final nine months. Not not straight, right? Well, they were awake
1: that long. No, right? no, no, no. Yeah, okay. correct. A,
0: a week, eighty hours in one yeah. week. Imagine working basically sixteen-hour days all week. I think
1: some people even said it went on for you know six months, eight months, twelve months, whatever it might have been. The culture at Retro getting this game out, for as beloved as it became, and the fact they got to make a bunch of sequels that were well received i mean the game was made under some pretty bad circumstances um that i don't want to say result from barcia i'm sure there was a lot of publisher expectations and pressures there as well but when the guy at the top isn't you know doing his due diligence to fix a bad culture that culture will only perpetuate as that pressure gets worse as
2: deadline yeah. bloom yeah which i can't imagine that pressure of like you know, you're a pretty young studio to begin with. You've had all your other things kind of get canned for one reason or another. Then the thing that you get off the ground is uh, basically an adaptation of a established like franchise. And even though Metroid was only like three entries in, it had already become like, oh, no, this is a beloved chair series by Nintendo yeah. of all people who was a I can't imagine being maybe I, I can't imagine my mind being the easiest to work with just because of how precious they are about their their IP. And then not even just, it's not even the think like, oh, we'll just make another one of those. Like, we'll just do a Super Metroid 2. It's like, no, you have to completely reinvent this beloved series. Don't blow it. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was an interesting
1: quote from someone I talked to about this. Not to just, like, read my story on the air, but I think it plays into what we're talking about. Like, why people just kind of, like, dove headfirst into this project after such a terrible history with the company. And the guy, the guy said, Ben, get ready. You're going to have to bleep some of this. He said, fuck all the people doubting us. We're going to do this. We weren't doing it for the studio. You don't feel allegiance to a studio that fires three quarters of your friends. For the team, we're going to get this done. We're going to show that as a team, we can pull this together. Which I think um, doesn't really speak to the the crunch too much that was probably mandated on them. But speaks to why people on the team weren't
2: just like, I'm out. I'm not working here
1: like and actually saw the project through and dealt with kind of the bullshit on top of them
2: yeah it's kind of like there's we have gone through so much it's like we almost we we have to get this done because like I'd rather just not be all for nothing like if we're going to go through all this crap we're going to produce the best thing possible to try to make it somewhat worth it it's wild I feel like you hear about studios saying that and it's rare they
1: actually do make one of the best games of all time but in this case by God, they did it.
0: Somehow that pressure cooker just turned out a gem. But adding to all that, like it sounds like demoralizing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just two years of hell. And then adding to that, every time they showed off the game ahead of time, fans would just complain about it. Really? Nobody. Yeah. I remember reading about it in magazines ahead of time and people were just crapping on it because, oh, it's Metroid in 3D. It's a first person shooter. This
2: is a bad idea. People were not Mm. on board with the concept. People I think people it's like this game in Kingdom Hearts, which is funny. It came out the same year like people forget either because they weren't born or around during that time or because, you know, there's been so many entries and it's been established. as like a thing that everyone loves. Both of those games, people hated them when they were coming. People were so upset before they came out. Yeah, like people were so upset at the idea of Kingdom Hearts, thinking that Square Soft at the time sold out to Disney and they're like, what is this nonsense, this weird trash and huh. yeah like you were saying with uh metroid prime people are like this isn't like like today it'd be like hashtag not my metroid first person what <laughs> i'm sure that's surprising to you blake because you know yeah.
0: these days people don't hate on things before playing them you know sure. people that's obviously right. like play them and, and think about them critically before yeah. they comment no one's on ever, it. no one's ever found my personal email account
1: to email me about a game they've never played that i have played that's definitely so yeah it's surprising to hear that, that would happen why did you change Metroid Blake? Well, I needed a good polygon story out of it. So, oh, okay, I set the wheels in motion when I was four
0: <laughs> years old. You played the long game, uh huh, and it worked out. A detail on the music Clark Wynn, who's an audio designer on the first two Prime games, he talked about that they originally designed Metroid Prime to be played without music. But wow. to, to clarify, like they weren't sure. The audio team had a tough time finding a composer that was going to work, so they basically were de- designing the games like, "Well, let's just—is this good without music?" So that was kind of their wow. how, like hey, read development there was. was.
1: There was a story I heard from a sound designer, and it, it might have been for sound effects, and I can't remember the specifics. I didn't make it into my story, and I didn't dig through a transcription to find it. But they used because so many people were laid off from the studio. So much of this massive studio was just empty. And so they would use empty rooms to create certain sounds for the games. Like, because they could just go in and be like, well, there used to be 40 people here. Now I just have this massive office room and let's see what the acoustics are like. And I wish I wish oh, I could remember weird. the specifics better, but it was something along those
2: lines. <laughs> it's almost sad. It's so way. haunting. You can almost hear the coders. <laughs> my fr- my yeah. friend used to work here. <laughs> now let's see. If yeah. uh, how this sounds in here? That's that's wild to me because I I've kind of firmly believed that I think Prime Prime One specifically has the best soundtrack of the entire Metroid series. It's always been a personal mm-hmm. favorite of mine. It's one of the ones I'll throw up. When I'm like working, it's like in my rotation of game soundtracks. It's got some really good songs. A lot of them also very relaxing. Like "Thin Drama Drifts," things how you pronounce it. The like Ice World. That yeah. song is so nice to listen to, like the regular one and the kind of like the more upbeat remixed one. And the uh, the Wrecked Orf- Orphion, I believe, is how you pronounce it. The the ship that gets wrecked that has a great song. And even the in credit song is awesome. Like Prime's got some bangers. Rektorfion, damn near killed him. It's also a good band name, by the way, for if your if you're Metroid Prime tribute man, Rektorfion. <laughs> did we did we miss any nuggets of interesting?
0: That's a weird way to put it. Do we miss any like interesting details from development blank that you remember reporting on?
1: Uh, I guess not the development per se. There was a pretty gnarly story after the game came out where um, management set up a bonus system. For everyone after the years of hell and then uh, as it was told to me barcia changed those numbers to you know not that you know people junior people were making the same bonuses a senior person might but that there was a fair distribution of money um and as it's told to me barcia changed the numbers so that it was basically a sheer cliff wall where the people at the top got a bunch of money and then no one else did so internally it was leaked and people then saw how unfairly the money distribution actually was after these numbers were changed and then like the company sent everyone home scrubbed it from the computers but they planned a mass exodus they were like we're out you can't do this to us after all this you can't even like pay us fairly compensate us fairly in this bonus program and then you know I I'm I'm Vastly oversimplifying this entire process, but Nintendo caught wind of that, got Barcia out of there, replaced him with Michael Kelbaugh, who I believe still leads Retro Studios to this day. And they went on and made the two sequels. And then some Donkey Kong games. Yeah, and the, the Donkey Kong game is like totally fine 7.5 Ren Topi. Um, but yeah, it, it's fun. things did not immediately get better after the release of that game. If anything, they got worse for just a brief period.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, turning a company culture, it's like moving the Titanic, right? It takes a while yeah. to get a, you know, make any kind yeah. of change. I don't,
1: I don't like, I, I don't personally know. No one I spoke to, um, in the interest of honesty, still worked at Retro when I spoke to them. No one like Nintendo and Retro did not participate in my story. I only spoke to former employees. I I don't know what the culture is like there now. I mean, we, I don't, I don't know of any horror stories that have come out from other reporters, but I, I am curious to know, like, under Kelba's leadership and, you know, other people that came within that studio, if things have turned around, it's been 20 years, it could have gotten way better than way worse again, like,
2: could have been peaks and valleys,
1: I don't know. And so we just
0: jump into the story.
2: Absolutely. So, uh, kind of starting like we did with Metroid, uh, Fusion and, and even bit of Super Metroid, uh, this is this is a tale and what's interesting about the metroid prime series is that the entire prime series takes place in between metroid 1 and metroid 2 it's basically like the street fighter alpha of the prime games or like this entire story is like a prequel basically immediately or maybe not immediately but right after the events of metroid 1 you know our girl samus is defeated the space pirates and i got this from the uh, the official metroid wiki but she's exploring space looking for another client which, for some reason, is just funny to me. The idea is she's just flying around space looking for work. <laughs> does it sound like a nine to five '80s comedy? <laughs> I mean, I guess she's technically a freelancer, so we could probably relate to that. She's just trying to get those pitches out there, send a uh-huh. resume, like, "Hey, I uh, I wiped out the Metroids." I don't know if you know. <laughs> um, it's hard for a working girl in space, <laughs> apparently. Um, but she does intercept a distress signal form from the Orphean, which is the or is a space pirate ship that I guess escaped her, uh, her beatdown of those dudes on Zeebs. So she pretty much follows it to go finish the job, so to speak. Um, But when she gets there, she finds out that most of the crew uh, the space pirates, they've all been murdered by their own experiments, which are these kind of little parasite uh, creatures. And as she makes her ex parasites, right? No, not yet. We're not, we're not there yet. They're kind of more like little bug things or something? I, I guess everything in Metroid's a little bug thing when you really think about it, but... Yeah. Well, this did you say, like, this slots into the timeline like
0: right after the first game? Yeah, Fusion is way later. Before Metroid 2 even.
2: But yeah, she uh kind of makes her way to the ship's core, and she encounters the Parasite Queen, which is a, a giant, almost like a big tick. It's kind of how I always looked at it. It's uh, like the first real boss fight in the games and the big containment unit, and you have a big battle with it, and you beat it. Uh, but the queen falls into the ship's reactor core, which, of course, triggers a self-destruct because this is a Metroid game, after all. And uh, Samus escapes the ship. But on her way out, she encounters Ridley, who has not died. Of course, this would be the only the second time that they would have faced in the, the chronology or the chronology. But uh, Ridley has become cybernetically enhanced and is officially known as Meta Ridley. I don't know. I guess he did this to himself. Yeah. What I'm curious about
0: is like this takes place before Super Metroid. So he unmeta's himself for Super Metroid.
2: Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Or maybe. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe he was like, oh, this isn't working. I guess I'll go back to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
0: good. Before. I tried that meta thing for a while. It, it wasn't was, my thing.
2: It was like the scene in Mortal Kombat Annihilation when Jax takes off his metal arms and realizes his true strength was in his natural arms. And that's where he beats Motaro. Clearly, you know, it's inspiring. Uh, but, you know, they have a little uh, showdown here. But and the uh, ship explodes, Samus manages to escape, but barely the explosion damages her suit. And it's pretty much the excuse for why she loses all of her abilities and you have to go get them again. And this uh, is the
0: thing, too, that everybody points back to is like, okay, when are you going to have that Samus moment? You know, when when are you going to have her like get knocked out and take all her stuff away? Because it happens in a lot of Metroid games and a lot of non Metroid games, you know, like the Batman games do this, too. Like, how do you depower your hero at the start of the next game? You think
2: she would at a certain point have like a failsafe to stop that? (laughs) You have a second suit, maybe a backup. Yeah. Yeah. Back those up, Samus. Hey, Samus, back that up. <laughs> oh, I guarantee you that's a trap song. It's out there somewhere. Uh, so Samus pursues Meta Ridley to the planet Talon 4. And uh, on the planet, uh, which also has a great overworld song, just going to say, she discovers that it's uh, kind of contaminated with uh, this toxic, like all the water is toxic. Even through her suit, when she steps into it, it damages her. And as she explores uh, the Chozo ruins that are dotted there because Chozo ruins are, are everywhere, it turns out. She, she finds out that uh, the Chozo on this planet were wiped out by Phazon, which is a poisonous energy source that infected the planet after it was hit by a meteor years ago and everyone's dead. And so she gradually regains her abilities and this is kind of the it's kind of the bulk of the game you're, you're exploring uh, Talon for. You, you visit the Magmore Caverns, which is kind of a fiery area. It's there that you find out that the uh, space pirates have kind of set up shop here. And they've been using that area to draw uh, geothermal energy. And she also finds the Fendrama Drifts, which is an icy mountain region. And she discovers the space pirates have a lab set up where they are studying Metroids that had survived the destruction of a uh, taurian i believe i said that planet right and it's funny here because uh up to this point the space pirates are largely unaware that samus is on the planet so she actually kind of takes them by surprise here when you're going through the whole assault in their lab uh and so as she's kind of piecing together what's going on here she eventually finds the uh wreckage of orpheon and climbs in there and makes her way down to the phason mines underground and it's here that she discovers the space pirate experiment which is metroid prime basically ostensibly it's a metroid that was attached to the meteor that hit the planet and it's kind of a the source of uh, the planet's problems like it's It's got the same physiology as a regular Metroid, but it it, it's infused with Phazon. It can basically absorb almost an infinite amount of it. Well,
0: and it looks nothing like a Metroid.
2: (laughs) No, it It uh, looks like a giant spider creature. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, Metroid Two kind of established that the Metroids can't evolve into like we will we call them lizard creatures in that game. They or at least they look lizard like. But this guy is like a yeah, like you said, kind of a big spider. But uh, it's implied that the Phazon is heavily mutated. It you know what still better than a brain in a jar yeah pretty much brains and jars not cool sorry einstein uh his brain's in a jar in case dude he's anyone. listening <laughs> disney's right here He might be
0: wait which one's the more uh, is there any more famous like head in a jar than like disney or einstein who's who's more famous for that
2: wait is disney's brain in a jar I well that that's was what they say broom. is
0: like his decapitated doesn't that what they say like his head is like frozen somewhere and like that's more isn't, of an urban legend. Like the Einstein thing is real. His his brain did get sort of. Isn't this stolen, just like but. a f- plot line in Futurama?
2: Yeah, a recurring element with the heads, <laughs> yeah. the, the preserved heads. I thought the I thought while Disney, I thought it was his whole body is frozen underneath Pirates of the Caribbean somewhere. It's not just his head. I thought it was full body, but maybe it might be. Maybe it changes. Maybe Disney along the way decided to separate his head from his body. They're like, we don't really need the rest of this. All the good ideas are up here. It's just down there. I'm going to go draw. I'm going to go draw on his face. If you guys
0: were last person on Earth, you know, last man on Earth style thing, would you go to Disney and just check out all the stuff that's going on underneath behind the scenes? Yeah, yeah why not? That's yeah. what I would want to do. <laughs>
2: Got to Wait, is that I don't think it'd be the first thing I would do. but If I was the last
1: man on Earth, I think I would go to the Vatican City. Not sure how to get over there. Uh, not really good air or sea travel. But And and I'd unlock the secrets of the world. I think that's where they all are, is
0: there.
2: Disney is probably a close second to the Vatican.
0: Because, you know, there's a bunch of, like, if you can get into, like, the Pentagon or something, there's maybe some interesting stuff there. Yeah. But, uh, it feels like a chore to sort through that. And a lot of it's like probably on digital servers yeah. that are just going to not it, work the, anymore.
1: The Vatican has all those books they won't let people read, which, what are you hiding? That's all I'm trying to say. Mm. What are you hiding? Because doesn't the Vatican have a rule? It's like once a book's in its library, you can't actually the public can't see it for like a hundred years or something.
2: Yeah, it's a what really terrible hiding?
0: library in hindsight. <laughs> it's not really useful. <laughs> and then it's a hundred years old and you gotta handle it with gloves and you're like, Oh you yeah. can't I can't look at this. See, me and Dan Brown. We know. Oh. Dan Brown's been there.
1: Actually he has, I think, while writing the Da Vinci code. Yeah, they let him go into the library. Oh, when are we doing an episode of video gamography on Da Vinci
2: Code? The Da Vinci Code video game <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll call yeah. you Blake <laughs> uh, oh man I forgot where we were um, but yeah. well and you're fighting
0: Metroid Prime it's basically the end of the game right or or do you fight Ridley after that
2: well no you, you run into Metroid Prime but like you discover it and uh, you kind of find out that it's guarding the core of the planet which is pretty much just phase on and so it pretty much it means that, you know, you're going to have to kill this thing if you want to get rid of the phase on Talon four. Uh, so she as she's down there, she fights the space pirates, which are they're also enhanced with phase and they make like more powerful versions of themselves, including the Omega pirate, which is a big boss fight. And when you beat that guy, uh, Samus gets the phase suit, which is very important. And while she's down there and, and along the way, she learns about the. The artifact temple, which is pretty much what the Chozo's built as a is a failsafe or a, a shield to keep as much phase on from leaking out of the planet as possible. You know, obviously, some of it has leaked, but it, it apparently could have been worse. And also to keep a uh, Metroid Prime down there. And the only way to unlock the shield is to find oh, wait, 12- So Metroid Prime is like ancient. I guess I missed this. Yeah, it, it came with the meteor that hit the planet like okay. it, was, it was on it and so the only way to unlock this uh the shield so to speak is to find 12 artifacts and that's kind of where you spend the game doing next that's the like dumb fetch quest at the end of the game
0: that felt like they were
2: yeah you know stretching out the length of the game it is metroid prime's version of the the triforce things in wind waker <laughs> oh yeah i forgot nintendo had a habit of doing that <laughs> So that means maybe when we get the prime remake, we get the equivalent of the quick sale for Metroid prime or somehow she can speed that up. Maybe they'll add the speed run and you can just immediately just zip past environments, go get those. Um, So yeah, this is kind of the busy work section of the game. Eventually Samus gets all 12. She brings it back to the temple. She's going to unite them. And that's when Meta Ridley shows up again and attacks. And during their fight, uh, Meta Ridley destroys the the totems that are used to open up this, the shield. Uh, so they get into a big fight. Uh, Samus fight uh, defeats Ridley, but it's not until the Chozo statues come to life and they all fire laser beams at Ridley. And that's kind of the quote unquote killing blow at lo- knocks Ridley into a chasm. And that's the last time you, you see him. And then the ghost of the Chozos all appear. There's 12 of them, one for each artifact. And they kind of deem Samus is like, yeah, you're, you're the one that's going to fix this we trust you and so they open up the uh the crater which allows samus to enter and that's where she uh finds metroid prime and they get into a basically a two part fight uh you beat it the first time and then an, it takes on its second form uh which is pretty much immune to all of her weapons but uh, uh suit uh she uses it to absorb the phazon in the area or the yeah and it creates the uh on energy beam that she uses to overload Metroid Prime with just too much energy to the point where the prime uh creature absorbs the suit itself the on suit and it explodes just blows up real nice and this allows Samus to escape the crater as well as Talon 4 and she gets back on her ship and i guess continues looking for more work It's hard for a girl out there in space. (laughs) However, however, if you beat the game with every item obtained, you get a secret cutscene where after Samus leaves, you see that the Metroid Prime has survived and is reassembling itself into a form that heavily resembles Samus herself. Which, of course, segues Um, uh, into the second Prime Prime 2.
0: The, the, so I remember doing that because I got all the baubles and whatnot and I saw that cutscene and I was like, oh, cool, like it's like a dark Samus or something's going to be the next game. And then when they did the marketing or or they were spinning up press for the sequel, it seemed like nobody had known about that cutscene because they're all like, oh, guess what? There's dark, like nobody talked about it until the second game came out. They're like, oh, I thought really they cool,
2: had. Kid. Well, yeah, I am I guess I sound like a hipster, that's kind of a cool thing, right? That's kind of a throwback to the first Metroid. Like, you know, you, you got that's how you found out Samus was a woman in the first place mm-hmm. Is that you had to beat it under a certain time limit. So it's kind of cool that they added another secret scene, you know, based on your completion rate.
0: Here's what they should do for four Metroid Prime 4 is dark Samus returns. You fight her through the whole game, get to the end. And if you get a certain completion percentage, you like rip off
2: her helmet and find out it's a man. Oh, it's Adam, no, her dead her dead captain guy that's also an AI now, and now he's also Samus somehow. I'm
0: just trying to flip the script, you know, like what, how do you surprise people anymore? I don't yeah. I don't
2: think they should do that. It's her father, and then I don't she he says, Where did you learn to do this, Samus? And she's like, I learned it from watching you. And they have an emotional reunion.
0: It's hard out there in space for a working girl. <laughs>
2: apparently a lot of wild things happen out there in the galaxy uh metro prime 4 should really be her meeting pikmin i still maintain that that is still a brilliant idea yeah we they could exist in the same universe we don't know
0: we we didn't talk a ton about this game talks a little bit about
2: how samus was raised by the chozo doesn't it yeah i think yeah they get into it uh it's weird the story doesn't Super get into it. I think it's something that's more along the edges of like the lore things that you find. But yeah, they there is a little bit about Samus's backstory. I can't remember if maybe Prime Two gets into it a little deeper. I think maybe you're
0: right, but that's where I was first introduced. I think that concept was maybe introduced in the comics first, but this is where I first heard about it. I was like, oh wait, she wasn't raised by humans. She was raised by these aliens, and I guess that sort of makes sense why she feels like an outsider an outcast and it's kind of a loner. But then also, does that have anything to do with, like, why, you know, her, her abilities are so different from a normal human?
2: I I, I remember playing at the time and I th- thinking to myself that she herself was a Chozo. Because, again, I, I was still making my way through the series and, like, discovering the lore. And, mm-hmm. like, I was like, oh, maybe Chozos are just, you know, like, human-like a- aliens. And maybe that explains why she's, like so powerful and how she got her suit because her suit we've always known her suit was like chozo in origin i was like oh maybe that's just they just look like people it's like you know so many fiction aliens just look like people um but then yeah like later games especially like other M, you're like no she's totally just a person (laughs) um and then you know the earlier metroid saying that she has cybernetic enhancements and now she's raised by aliens so i guess it's just all of the above (laughs) what do you think blake You,
0: you interested at all in checking this game out now after we've talked about it? uh
1: if they put on switch yeah i'm not gonna go out of my way to play though that's
2: fair i'm too busy
0: hey the game was great i think it's worth playing for sure if you have the means or the ability it is still the highest selling metroid game at 2.84 million according to some stats i've
2: seen dread hasn't taken it yet well, we'll see. Uh, as
0: of this recording, it hasn't yet. But the dread has an opportunity to do that. I, dread could do that. Uh, that'd be interesting. Hmm. But yeah, it became the one of the best selling games on the GameCube oh. period. So not just wow. Metroid games.
2: Yeah, they even uh I think it was in 04 that they started bundling it with GameCubes. Sold 1.49 million
0: in the US alone. Yeah. They so come- they did good. Retro did good. It's interesting to think about All the pressure they were under, you know, working 80 hour Mm. work weeks for nine months straight, uh, you know, two year development hell. Every time you show off the game, people are crapping on it. It just feels like super demoralizing, you know, the the way that company was founded, all the sleazy stuff going on there. And yet somehow (laughs) out of all of that, this total gym comes out and it's just it's an amazing game. And like we said, sort of a game uh, head and shoulders above its generation to where it felt like a game from the future, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird to think, you know, Nintendo not known for shooters at all um to think that they have like not only a big first-person shooter franchise. And it's you know what's interesting because I I when I was looking this up too, apparently Nintendo doesn't consider it a first-person shooter. They always label it first-person adventure for the Prime series because of the exploration elements. I
0: can kind of see their point cuz you are technically shooting things but you're you know it's not a twin stick shooter that's one thing we didn't say is like this game functions differently than most first person games you're not looking around with the right stick you move and then you have to press a button to look around and yeah. then there's a lock on button to lock on to enemies so it's actually combat's in some ways easy you know you lock on to enemies and then you need to use certain beams against certain enemy types so it's more about using the right weapon against the right enemy And doing it pretty efficiently than it is, you know, moving your camera around, which is, you know, I'm fine with that. I actually kinda like that. But then outside of that, like that's just the combat. Then there's this whole other part of the game that's more about solving puzzles, exploring the environment. And that to me was the meat of the game. That was the more important part of the game. And so I can I can kind of see why Nintendo thinks it's an adventure game.
2: Yeah. I thought it was strictly them trying to like, you know brush off the violence or they just didn't like the word shooter like it's a bad word but it's like oh no it's apparently like what you just said that was their reasoning which is like yeah that makes sense and i I also want to point out like when you're mentioning the controls the controls for metro prime sound terrible when you'd say them out loud but they are perfect for the gamecube controller (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it it, it, they sound like horrible shooter controls but for how weird that controller is it is weird how butter (laughs) it feels just only on that specific controller um but yeah they you know they have their own first person shooter franchise that is one of the best ever it's not even like they tried it and it was like okay it's like no it's up there i rank it up there with like the halos and the call of duties and i guess if we want to get to like first person adventure like the bioshocks of the world you know maybe not necessarily in writing but in terms of just pure moment-to-moment stuff it's fantastic
0: yeah. And it put retro on the map, this you know, studio that had just been founded a few years previously, had not released, had four games canceled. <laughs> this was its first release. It's a that rare it was kind club. kind of surprising.
2: Yeah, that rare club of like young studios like knocking out a park in debuts. You know, there's not a lot of those. Do we still
1: have that cardboard cutout in our office? Oh
0: yeah. I think we do. I think it's in storage right now, but yeah. Hell yeah. Shouts out to that cardboard cutout
2: when metroid prime 4 comes out that's when we dig it out that's that's yeah that's the big we'll return. Auction it off. you
1: don't see those as much these days i feel like in america i
2: went i went to japan
1: they had a bunch for death stranding that were like the actual heights of the actors it's very strange you don't really see them as much in america
0: well uh, do you not or do you just not go to like gamestop where they would be i mean i go to gamestop every day as an employee of gamestop the game reformers offices are not a gamestop they keep telling me I gotta go to the one in a diner. I'm there every day. You're I'm going in there now. to do your work? <laughs> yeah, I'm here in their their storage room right now. That's why your audio's so bad.
1: Yeah, Ugh. they got no cardboard cutouts. I keep saying we gotta get some more around here. We How gotta you, get more you...
0: cardboard in here. <laughs> well, I think that does it. That's uh Metroid Prime in a nutshell. Blake, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. I anything to, you want to promote, anything you think people should check out, then go yeah, read your Polygon article. But.
1: Yeah, go to polygon.com. Um, actually, just type in like Retro Studios Polygon into Google and it'll pop up real quick. I think that story came out in like 2017, 2018, but I read it today. And look, as the writer, I identify where I could have done better, but as the reader, you'll never know.
0: So please go read it. I think it stands for, on its own. Great Good story. Yeah. Great.
2: Well, you can follow me at, at Benjamin Reeves on Twitter, and you can follow me Marcus Stewart at Marcus Stewart seven on Twitter as well. That's the number seven.
1: And you can follow me at Radmir on Twitter. At Radmir. Radmir. R A D
0: M U R E. Is that's not your Twitter account? Yeah, what Twitter is. account is that? Did you it's change your Twitter
1: handle? Yeah. Sure. Just go follow me there. Tweet at me. Say I Whose love Twitter account. Is that <laughs> tweet at, tweet at Radmir. say I love Blake. Blake is so great. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll appreciate it.
0: Good, good luck with that. Everybody. Thank you <laughs> out there for listening to this episode of the show please like us please subscribe please leave us a review if you want to get in contact you can email us at podcast at you can send us corrections if you have any so far we haven't had any but we would love to hear from you we might start reading some reviews out here on the future episodes so you never know come back next week we'll be doing metroid prime 2 echoes give me the balls